Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, November 23rd, 2010, unless you're in Australia, where it's Wednesday the next day. We're sure glad you've joined us. Our special guest tonight is Matt Levinson. Matt, welcome. Thank you, Steve. That is your photograph, right? Yeah, that's me. That's the right guy. Matt's here to talk about his book, From Fear to Facebook. I really enjoyed this book. Glad that uh, you're here tonight, Matt. Glad that those of you who are also here are joining us. Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, now Blackboard Collaborate. The project I work on is called Learn Central, which is a social network for educators with Illuminate baked in. It is free. We hope to come and take advantage of that. For this month and last month, Future of Education has also received some sponsorship from Microsoft's Redo program uh, at Bing.com Redo. Thanks so much to Microsoft for that. It's helped my book budget quite a bit. We just wanted to report on our Global Education Conference. I've been showing this slide for so many months now, and it actually is done and over with. Friday we've concluded. What a stunning event. Not without small hitches, but in large part just an incredible, incredible event with over 400 sessions. All the recordings are up on the website, over 15,000 logins. Kind of hard to believe it's over, but it is. We're going to move on. My next project is a Learning 2.0 conference, which we're going to try and hold in the spring in similar fashion. Although those of you interested in global education, do not worry. Looks like we're going to be starting a weekly series on that as well. Coming up on the Future of Education, uh, on the 30th, Philip Schlechty. Schlechty leading for learning, then Kieran Egan in December, Julie Young from Florida Virtual Schools, Deborah Meyer, and Alfie Cohn. That's going to be a powerful week. Then in January, we've got scheduled Ira David Silcall, Will Richardson, Barnett Berry, Karen Hume on her book, Tuned Out, David Perkins on his book, Learning, Making Learning Whole. That's in February already. And then March 1st, I'm really looking forward to this, Sandy Hirsch uh, from San Jose State University on libraries and digital literacy. Lots of fun. If you've missed a Future of Education interview, they are all recorded and they're up at futureofeducation.com. Feel free to find something there of interest to you. I hope there's something there of interest to you. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Uh, we hope that you will participate and we'll give a chance for you to do Q&A. You can use the smiley face or the clapping hand down at the bottom. The background noise, I think, is from Matt. Matt, if you turn your mic up just for a second, I think we'll hear that noise go away. How's that? A little bit better, I think, yeah. Okay. In fact, uh, once Matt starts talking, primarily, it won't seem as obvious. Um, you can use those emoticons down at the bottom. You can also use the hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand if you would like to take the microphone. Um, I recommend at this stage going up to view layouts and switching your layout to the wide layout. It makes it much easier to see the chat. And now I'm going to give you a chance to use the whiteboard. Yeah, I'm hearing a little bit of an echo also, and I think that may just be Matt. But um, I don't think it'll bother you once Matt's doing most of the talking. Okay, so we're going to move to the map here, our world map. If you've been on the been a participant before, you know the drill. Otherwise, look for the wand with a red star at the end on the left-hand side of the map. Click on that and then click on the map. And we'll know where you're listening from. It looks like we may have China, a couple in Australia, lots of U.S., India. 
I mean, we didn't do an official count from the Global Education Conference, but we had presentations accepted from 62 countries. So it's been really fun to watch the uh, international participation. Yes, and some of you are shouting out in the chat where you're listening from. And you're welcome to put the weather, the time, the temperature, that kind of stuff as well. Lots of fun. Yeah, Mexicali. Oklahoma. I know there are tornadoes in the Midwest. I don't know if anybody's getting those. Oh, awesome, Brazil. Okay, well, we're going to move on here. So, that, uh, I don't know that I would have known this, but you and I connect at several kind of interesting points. Uh, the first is, did you know I went to Haverford for two years? No, I did not. That's <laughs> so, my dad had uh, grown up in that area. I have deep roots in the Philadelphia area, and I went to Haverford for a couple of years. And then he later became dean of admissions at Princeton. Uh, you, you know, there's a connection there. You were yeah, yeah, Princeton. Princeton Bay, yeah. And then I, I pretty much grew up in the Bay Area, so we have that connection. And then you, you know, uh, with some regularity, your book mentioned open source software. I feel like I, you and I were fated to meet. Right, that's great. <laughs> well, I really, really enjoyed this book. I think part of what I liked about it was the, kind of the compelling honesty of. Uh, discussing what you've gone through with the, you know, the implementation of your laptop program, um, but also that you extend that into some other um, you know, relatively uh, topical or, or, or very important discussions that, that people are having right now, um, especially about um, Facebook and parenting and, and you know, privacy. These are all things that I hope we're going to be able to talk about tonight. Um, I want to ask you a question right off the bat, and that is the role of technology in education. And it seems to me that it can either be viewed as a red herring, as a door opener, or as reflective of a larger cultural change. How do you express this balance, and, and what's your sense of what technology is actually doing to education at this moment? I, I do think it's a big culture change uh, going on right now, and that was probably the biggest lesson I learned when we rolled out the laptop program, is just how incredible this culture change was, because we did not recognize that going into the rollout of the one-to-one -one program. And I guess the biggest culture shift was for parents in the home, even though they had computers in their homes, when we rolled out to one-to-one, -to -one, all of a sudden it thrust the conversation uh, in, into the face of the parents of how are we going to manage this environment with our kids. And for the kids, it was a little bit of, oh no, the adults have gotten their heads out of the sand and we're starting to pay attention to what we're doing online. And this, we've been able to build our own culture up to this point. And now the adults are starting to enter into this culture and there's a lot of pushback from the kids. And I think now, four years later, you know, we're in the fourth year of our laptop program, we've really come a long way in shifting the culture for everybody. So parents are more comfortable talking to their kids teachers are more comfortable working with kids in the classroom. And actually, probably the best tribute for our teachers is they, they now cannot think about designing curriculum without technology in mind. But that's, it's just so embedded in the way they think about constructing their, their courses that they have to have curriculum integrated uh, with technology. And, and the kids often are the catalysts 
for the innovation and the change. I mean, sometimes the kids will come up with an idea, what if we use this tool or that tool? And our teachers are fantastic because they're open to the ideas of the kids, and that's a little bit of what Nueva is about. We use, you know, we're a progressive school, we believe in constructivism, so we're, we're really trying to construct knowledge with kids, and I think, you know, the environment that we had was conducive to the growth that we went through as a community, and, and I'm pleased with where we are four years later, even though the first year was, was kind of bumpy with that culture shift. So I want to talk about that, but before we move on, I do want to kind of build down on the parenting thing. That was the biggest surprise to me in the book, and, and I, took, I took away four key items. One was that, that in some ways parents became more aware of what their students, their children were already doing. Is that right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then sometimes uh, there was a feeling from the parents that there was a conflict with the school rules and the home rules. That was a big conflict the first year because I think we hadn't really worked with the parents to kind of to create rules that would make sense for both the home and the school where we could kind of work in partnerships so the kids were getting the same messages. So I think the first year we had situations where there were kids were getting mixed messages. It's sort of, you know, the classic, you know, you go to one parent and say, can I go to this movie? And then the parent says no, and you go to the other one hoping that they'll say yes. And we found that, you know, maybe the school was saying no, and the parent was saying yes, or the parent was saying no, and the school was saying yes. And I think now, four years later, we're all on the same page, and we've done a tremendous amount of work. We have two spectacular social and emotional learning teachers who really help to run parent education evenings. We have a great IT director who runs evenings for parents on how to customize the home in terms of content filtering, uh, software that they might want to have in the home. So we're much more inter intersecting now between home and school. We were not like that the first year. I love the comment you got in a parent letter that said, be strict, we support you, we just don't want to have to do this at home. <laughs> and that is, I think, you know, we were setting some boundaries for the kids at school and there was pushback and the parents were relieved that the school was starting to take this on because, you know, as anybody who works with middle school kids know, you know, this is the age of, of boundary testing where kids are really going to push the boundaries and the parents knew that the school was really going to be the driver and, and take it on with the kids and you know, be the bad guy, I guess, in, in some way. But it really, and then the parents often didn't know how to do it. So we were there to kind of work with them and they could come to parent groups and say, oh my gosh, okay, I'm not alone. I have a community here who can help me figure out how to make it work in my home. Yeah, that was really interesting. You make the point in the book that parents have to learn how to manage their home computing environment. And that really came out of the blue for me, but made so much sense. Yeah, and I think that was honestly the biggest surprise that we had when we started the program. We just hadn't anticipated how difficult that was going to be for, for parents because we all were under the assumption that you know, parents had computers in the home and, and you know, I know that's not the case in every community, but in, in our community most of the parents did have a, a computer in the home, so we kind of figured that they'd already figured that out with their kids and we fast realized that was not the case. They hadn't had those conversations. Okay, well, I'd like you to tell the story of that first year, and and I'm going to make sure if you if you don't tell it, that I, I want to hear about the iChat issue, the AUP incident, um, and um, well, then I, we'll go from there. But you want to tell that first year story? Yeah, sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, so we rolled out the laptops. We gave it out to grades six, seven, and eight. Uh, we started right out of the gate as school began, and I can still remember the first 
session that we had with the kids where we had them in a room, several rooms, and they were getting their passwords to get on the website. And we had teams of teachers in, in the rooms working with the kids. And before we knew it, the kids were video chatting with each other, eye chatting faster than we even knew what was going on. And I do remember one of the teachers coming out to find me to say, should we be worried about this? <laughs> and we just, it, we were, the adults a little bit, you know, deer in headlights, we just couldn't believe how fast uh, the kids were. And actually within 10 minutes, one of the students had hacked into the administrative password and then we had to have a community meeting with the kids about <laughs> sort of not doing that kind of thing. And, and we just didn't realize how far ahead they were than the adults. So that was, and then that became an issue uh, with the parents because the laptops went home with iChat enabled and parents were not ready for that. And some of them did not want that enabled and really felt blindsided by the school. And then we had other parents who felt like, well, you know, we've got kids who live vast distances away and, and what a great way for them to connect around homework, to have conversations with each other. And, you know, that was a big source of tension. So we had a lot of parent meetings to try and work through that. And we, then we ultimately made the decision to block iChat. And we did that because we felt that we, had, we needed to own it. We, we had blindsided the parents. We hadn't prepared them for this tool and how to use it in the home. Now, you know, thinking about it a couple of years later, I mean, a lot of people use Skype pretty regularly. I know we use it every Sunday with my parents to, so they can see their grandkids going through. But at that point, people, a lot of the adults were not yet comfortable with that. And then, and then we ran into the issue with the acceptable use policy that we had not designed that acceptable use policy with the kids together. Uh, it had been developed by adults. Um, sort of the way I think about it is from the outside looking in as opposed to from the inside looking out. And that created a lot of pushback. I think the kids did not feel involved. They felt that the AUP didn't represent reality to them in, in the way they were living. They felt that there were too many restrictions being put on the use of the laptops, so they pushed back on that. And, and that, was a, that was a hard year. Uh, you know, we made progress, certainly with kids through our social and national learning program and the conversations we were having with parents so they could talk at home as well. Uh, but that, that was a big source of, of tension. And then, you know, at the end of that first year, we, we had a sort of post-mortem as a staff thinking, okay, what are we going to do about this? And we realized that the kids had, had dictated the culture to us as opposed to us keeping the culture that we want to have at school and integrating the technology into that culture. And it had kind of run away from us. So we had a big post-mortem to redesign the acceptable use policy. Again, the mistake is we did it as adults without enlisting the kids. And then we went into year two, and, and you know, we had more pushback that year as well. Okay, so you just used a really critical word for me, which is mistake. Um, and just those who are listening can probably can hear it in your voice, this, this sort of openness about what happened and a willingness to rethink. But I do want you to tell the moment of the young student taking the microphone, because there's so much power in that story. Yeah, this was at the beginning of the second year. And we had, uh, we had carefully organized the start of the school year. We had a boot up camp organized with workshops with kids around you know, the ethics and care of the laptops, uh, how to use applications on the laptops, how to integrate them into the learning environment. And we felt pretty good about it. We invited Common Sense Media to do a parent evening. We had Officer Steve DeWines to talk to the kids about cyber safety. <clears throat> and I remember at the end of that first week, we had a tech committee meeting and we were sort of reflecting on the first week and we were patting ourselves on the back saying that could not have gone better. This is much better than year two and we felt pretty self-congratulatory. And then that Friday at an all-school assembly, 
Um, I'll never forget that at the time it was 1:59 and 42 seconds, and the assembly ends at 2 o'clock on Friday. And the guy who was running the assembly handed the mic uh, to one of the eighth grade students, and then he walked over to me to say, "Do you, do you know what she's going to say? Did you plan this?" And I said, "No, I didn't plan this. Why did you give her the mic?" Knowing full well that she had a lot of energy about the acceptable use policy. So then she um, announces to the student crowd. Well, first she asked the lower school children to leave because she, she thought it was just a middle school issue. So I, I gave her a lot of credit for doing that. And then she said, how many students here agree with the acceptable use policy? And one student raised his hand. And I still remember that kid vividly. And I absolutely love that kid for raising his hand. And then she said, how many of you disagree with the acceptable use policy? And there was a huge roar. And the rest of the kids you know, started stomping and marching down with the AUP, down with the AUP. And they sort of marched out of the uh, assembly. And then that Sunday afternoon, I got a, conference, uh, a phone call at my home at 4.30 uh, Sunday afternoon from the student who had gotten all the other kids in the middle school on a conference call and wanted to have a conversation with me. And I said, you know, we'll have a community meeting uh, tomorrow to discuss this. And uh, then we, the next day, we gave a note card, again, with the guidance of our social emotional learning team to each student so they could write down three things that they disagreed with about the acceptable use policy. So the kids did that. And then we we're going to break up into smaller groups to have a discussion about it. And this student, again, uh, stood up and she had a carefully prepared speech and she spoke about um, really the issue of trust and I think she talked about the culture clash that was going on even though she didn't necessarily know that she was articulating that but that's what I took away from it that boy we really blew it and we needed to bring the kids into this process and, and really from that that was a pivotal turning point for us as a community because from that point on we had lunch meetings to bring the kids together to talk and, and try and work through some of the issues with the acceptable use policy and now Year four, where we have a policy where it's a question and answer acceptable use policy. So the kids develop the questions, a lot of them, and then we provide the answers with some rationale and justification so they can understand the why of the rules. And then we can add new questions as new issues come up uh, to the acceptable use policy. I'm thinking of all of the acceptable use policies that I've clicked on or in terms of service policies without reading them at all and thinking about a school full of students who actually knew enough about the policy to be protesting it. Yeah, I mean, that's the greatest part is I had, when I tell that story, I have so many people who say, your kids actually care about the acceptable use policy? And, and our kids do. I mean, they really want to be involved in, in creating the community together and, uh, and to have a voice. And I think that was the part that was hard for them is that we hadn't really given them a voice. And I think with technology, um, we have an obligation to give kids a voice and still be the, you know, provide the guidance as adults to help them uh, you know, with ethical and, and other decisions that may come through, but that's cute. Well, I got the sense that they didn't fully understand that the computers weren't theirs. Was there a degree to which they just sort of felt like they had been given to them and they should have free use of them? Yeah, there definitely was a little bit of that. I think that was probably some, somewhat of our mistake in the way we communicated out the delivery of the laptops. I mean, they are school-owned computers, and, and the software on there is you know, owned by the school, the email, the server, all those kinds of issues. And, and really, you know, we've tried to have some conversations with the kids. You know, when you work for a company, you often get a computer uh, when you're an employee of the company, and the company has ownership of the machine. And, and you know, even when you turn on these machines, you know, the first thing that pops up is this computer is the property of the Nueva School.
So you don't say it specifically, but you do uh, mention um, Apple and Apple for me to believe that you're using uh, Macintosh. Laptop. We are, yeah, we're using that. Yep. Did you uh, go through a process of, of platform choice, and was did, were you attempted at any point to use Linux? Uh, you know, we haven't yet. Um, we, we've had a little bit of conversation around that. Uh, we have a few parents in our community who are big open source advocates and who do use Linux regularly, and that's something that you know we're not there yet. But I would I would be interested in exploring that in the next couple of years. So I'll make a connection for you by email later. But Alex Inman runs a one-to-one -one laptop program, and they actually moved to Linux for some fairly interesting reasons. And I'll let you connect with him on that. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. How did you fund the program? Well, the kids um, they pay. So we're an independent school, private school, and they pay a leasing fee uh, each year as part of the tuition for the school. And then at the end of the eighth grade year, at the end of three years. Uh, with the laptop, and they have the option to buy the computers. Um, even though, you know, at the end of three years, the computers are pretty well worn, uh, having lived through three years of use by the students. Um, but that's that's how we fund it. And then you, each yeah. year now, do you do a one-day boot-up camp with the students? We do, yeah. <coughs> we uh, try to start the year with that so that we can go over the agreements about the use, uh, come up, you know, answer new questions that the kids might have, go over some uh, ethical case studies for kids in terms of situations they might encounter online and how they can escalate or de I should say de-escalate situations and make different choices there. Also to review the applications that are on the machine so they know the capabilities. Uh, and also have teachers lead sessions on how they're going to use the computers in their classroom so kids know how to get on the server, how to load their homework onto the server, how to find their class pages. And how to use the school website. So, and, and it's, you know, that's that's. And we've also brought in guest speakers. You know, we've had Common Sense Media here. Uh, we had Alan November uh, come here a year ago, which was great. And he was able to inspire our kids with the imaginative possibilities of technology, which was exciting. So, I, I'm not an, a teacher, and I have sort of limited experience in actually visiting schools. But I did really like what I saw at Science Leadership Academy. I've been there a couple of times, and they have a technology integration specialist. It's okay. Marcy Hall, and she works both with the students and with the teachers. That, you know, to help the students accomplish things yep. and to help the teachers integrate. How do you solve that issue of the teacher side of learning to use the technology? Uh, we've actually we have some great teacher leaders here with technology, and, and one of the teachers that I profile in the book is a science teacher who, right out of the gate when we started the laptop program, she saw the, the possibilities immediately and jumped right into it and moved her whole class online. Uh, so everything, you know, online lab reports, uh, video lab reports. She does PowerPoints, um, you know, every day, and and she actually takes pride in the green aspect. She produces no paper in the class. And last year, she actually was a Google Fellow for the year, and and so she's really been a, somebody who's led the way for us. But so we'll, I think what we have here now, year four, we have a pretty good organic culture of development where teachers will, things will bubble up that teachers are trying different applications and other teachers will then want to learn from those teachers, visit their classes. And actually, another way that our teachers really learn that accelerates the development is the kids. Because the kids leave a class, for example, using a, a chat feature called Today's Meet, 
which is a, a way to set up a back channel chat within a discussion. And then uh, they'll go to other classes and say, hey, how come we're not using this? Can we use it here? And then our teachers are, are pretty open about trying different features of technology. So we, we've really been fortunate here with the teacher leadership that we have. I think the organic culture that's taken hold uh, with innovation uh, with technology and the fact that I think we're pretty open to listening to kids to follow their lead when they have ideas about how to use technology in the classroom. Yeah, you use that word organic in the book and I made note of it. Uh, kind of this idea of teachers helping each other uh, and teachers yeah. being willing to learn from students. Yeah, I mean that's a key component. And I think the, the, the greatest, one of the greatest lessons of the one-to-one -one program is that it has absolutely accelerated uh, the professional development of teachers better than, you know, a workshop that somebody could go to or a conference that you could go to. Like, I think because you have to live in it, you have it in your classroom, you have this tool, you have to think about how to design technology, you know, design curriculum with technology in mind to talk to kids, to be willing to say, hey, do you have some ideas about how we might use this technology to deepen the learning experience, not just to use technology for technology's sake, but how does it actually enrich the learning experience for the kids? And I think that that's what has sped up. And I, I can think of one of our teachers the first year that we had the laptop program, she was adamant that she was not going to use the laptops. I mean, she said, I'm sticking with paper and pencil. Those things are not opening up in my humanities class. And then a year later, she had done a complete 180 and moved her almost her entire course online with blogs and wikis. And she did it because she went to her kids in class and said, guys, <clears throat> I want to do this, but I need you to show me how to do it. So she had her kids teaching her how to set up the blogs and wikis. She was still you know, designing the content and driving the course in terms of the goals that were going to be accomplished, but she was open to the kids uh, helping, helping her. And that was fantastic to see. I'm still trying to get Sugata Mitra to come on the show because I'd really like to talk about the Hole in the Wall project and sort of uh, what that shows about learning. We certainly see that here in the Future of Education uh, series and the Global Education Conference. It felt like the best learning came from participants teaching each other. I mean, it, it really does. And, and I think, you know, kids are amazing with technology. And I think about my daughter. Uh, this is last year, the, the night before school. She and my wife had gotten into a little bit of an argument. You know, sometimes the night before school, there's a little bit of anxiety. And she was six at the time. And so my wife got a little frustrated with her and went upstairs. And, and my daughter found the flip video camera out on the bench outside of her room. She'd never picked it up before. And my son, who's nine, who was nine at the time, used it a lot more. And she picked it up and she started playing with it and she recorded herself uh, saying to my wife, you know, Mom, I'm, I'm mad at you for, you know, when you were talking to me, et cetera, et cetera. And then she, she ran upstairs and, and left it in our bedroom with a, a little sticky note that said, play. And then my wife played the, the flip video camera and she couldn't believe that our daughter had figured this out. But then my wife, who was a first grade teacher, and she said, well, this is, what a great idea. This would be a great thing to use in the classroom with my first graders. And especially when you're working on social development and helping kids understand how to communicate with each other so they can record each other, um, speaking and conversation around conflict. And so my wife immediately jumped to possibility. It was my daughter who opened her eyes about how to use the technology. And here's a six-year-old. So I think, you know, if we can all sort of be open to what kids can teach us, I think it's pretty incredible where we can head. So in uh, the chapter on kids online, 
lying is the yeah. new social norm. Uh, you you describe the opening of Ice Age and the sense that this is how schools feel. Are you willing to give that description? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think it is. I mean, the, the analogy I used was it was that giant glacier. Uh, you know, the scrap the squirrel is trying to plug the different holes in the glacier, and he's only got so many body parts to plug up the holes, and the holes are opening up faster than he can control them. And I think, you know, that if schools, and, and we're still struggling with this, we haven't figured it out completely, but when you close things off too much, kids will find a way to get around them, and then there's another way, and then you try and plug that one up, and then the kids find another way, and you don't want to create a game of cat and mouse. And I think we ran into that a little bit, you know, our first year when we were blocking everything, and that started with iChat, and we found that the kids are, are pretty good at finding their way around, uh, you know, finding the holes in technology. So I'm, I'm <laughs> caught looking at my notes trying to figure out where to go, knowing that we don't have as much time as I would like. Um, yeah. So. Uh, let's talk a little bit about protection, overprotection, privacy, freedom, independence, and how you balance that in a society in which it feels as though uh, we we're able to monitor so much of what students do. How do you how do you find a way to give them some sense of freedom or privacy? Yeah, it, it, it is interesting the way kids think about privacy, and Dana Boyd has written a lot about this. Uh, I think she's fabulous in the way she, she thinks about this, and her phrase is uh, public by default and private through effort. And I think that's the big lesson of, of the days that we're living in, is that everything you do is public by default, and you have to actually make an effort to be private with what you're doing. I, what, a question that I love to ask kids whenever I'm in, in different schools is, how many different online identities do you have? And it's fascinating when you ask middle school kids this question because some, some of them can have 15, 20, 25 different identities. And when you ask them, why is that? Why, do you, why don't you give your name out when they're in a game room, in a chat somewhere, or even on your email? They said, well, it's because we don't want some creepy person you know, finding out who we are. I mean, the kids know that they, they need to be safe and smart. Uh, when they're using these technologies and they come up with the different names. And my son is, you know, right now he's gotten into this uh, game called the NFL Rush Zone, which is playing with some of his friends, and he's got some silly name, and he knows <coughs> two of his best friends, they have ridiculous names, and he knows not to play with people that he doesn't know. Um, and I think it's just a fascinating issue for kids to try and figure out uh, the privacy piece. But also, you know, so many stories, and just over the summer, I was fascinated to follow uh, teachers who posted things on Facebook who were reprimanded by their school districts. There was a guy in Connecticut who was the superintendent, uh, I don't remember his name, David Teleska maybe, who his first day of work, you know, he was talking about taking a nap and you know, trolling through the internet and, and he was found out by the uh, board of directors of his school district and then he was disciplined for that and he didn't realize that what he was posting was available for the entire public. Uh, to see, and then of course the you know the tragedy of Tyler Clemente and how quickly that spiraled out of control, and the whole notion of privacy um, is, is a really tough one. And I think that we as, as educators and as parents have an obligation to really take that head on with kids and talk openly with them about some of the challenges with privacy. It's not something that we can just think that kids are going to learn and figure out on their own. They need the help of adults. 
Well, and you have a program that allows you to see the screen of what any student is doing at any point in time. So how have you balanced not being over-controlling, but also using that to be effective in sort of managing classroom practice? Yeah, we, we, it's interesting, you know, we've had to use it less and less as we've evolved with the one-to-one -one program. I think we, we probably used it a little bit more the first and second year, and we really felt like kids were um, distracted and playing games or, or an email in class, and so we would have the tech department would occasionally take um, screenshots of activity in the classroom, or they might see some randomly just you know spot check the campus during the day, and if they saw something, they they might let me know on email, and then I would walk over to the classroom and uh, just check in with the teacher, or even whisper in the kid's ear, hey, listen, you need to get back on task. You were just playing a game. And then we also brought parents into that because what we would do is sometimes we would send a screenshot home to say, you know, just want you to know that so-and-so was playing a game in math class today. Can you please have a conversation with them at home tonight? And oftentimes that was a great piece that happened because the parent would have a conversation with the kid, support the school, then the kid would come back, we would have a conversation with the kid, and the kid knew that the, the grown-ups were watching and supervising what was happening on the computers. But to be honest with you, we haven't had to use it as much within the last year, and I think that's <clears throat> partly because we're more effective uh, with the culture that we've established with the laptop program. And frankly, our teachers are that much more skilled at using technology in the classroom that it's being used really effectively so there isn't as much opportunity for kids to be off task with the computers. So I've been in a couple of classrooms where they had a, a big LCD at the front of the classroom that faced the students that showed little mini images of each student's computer. Did you ever consider that and were there downsides to that you felt uh, would make it a, not a good solution? Yeah, we didn't do that, uh, and we, we really, we actually never even talked about that. And I think that was that's too much in our in our eyes, because that would really create that big brother piece going through for kids and, and make them uncomfortable in the learning environment, and probably distract the classroom from the goals of what really needs to go on, which is to, to really deepen the learning experience with technology. So we we never went that route. I did uh, love the story you gave about the kids who were uh, prone to hacking the administrative password. Yes. Uh, tell, tell, tell how you solved that. Well, we, we, we really had a handful of kids who were very skilled and, and frankly curious and, and, and wondering if they could just figure it out how to hack the administrative password and really establish root access on different machines. And finally, we brought a couple of them together and said, listen, guys, you've got to stop. But what, what's going to make a change for you guys? And they said, well, we want to learn how to program. And we realized, you know what? They're right. We don't have a programming class, and we need to offer a programming class. So we offered a programming class the second year, and it was populated by the kids who had hacked into the administrator password, and their energies were now harnessed into learning how to program productively and positively. And they were really excited, and they were spending time, huge amount of hours outside of class on the homework and trying to figure things out, but in a productive manner. And we realized that was a gap in our program, and we're, we're <coughs> moving ahead with programming, we're, you know, we continue to teach a Java programming class. This winter we're going to offer a Python programming class. And we're really excited about the direction that we're heading in with programming. So I can imagine a school culture that's as engaging and as student-oriented and dynamic without computers. But I'm also wondering if it would be really hard to get to that culture 
without computers. Um, is there a degree to which uh, the tool brings you pedagogically to a place you want to be that you could get without computers but does it much faster? Uh, I'm not entirely clear what you're, what, you're, what you're getting at. Can you kind of rephrase that a little bit? Well, so I, I think that there are schools that have, that are very successful, have great educational cultures, but don't do so through the use of, say, a one-to-one -one laptop program. Right, so right. when you're talking to somebody who's at a school where they feel like they're not having success, is the pitch that going with a one-to-one -one laptop program is a really great accelerated way to get into that engagement environment or that it is now the only way? Oh, I don't think it's the only way. And, and I think, you know, schools have to have and, and build and sustain strong cultures regardless of technology. And that's really working, building an environment of trust with kids in a place where they feel like they have a voice and that they know that adults care about them. And technology is a tool that is exciting to use that I think can differentiate teaching in the classroom, which is a big reason why Noeva went to that in the first place. I think it can really deepen the learning experience for kids, honor their passions and interests, um, and shift the role in the classroom from, you know, sage on the stage to guide on the side, and, and really putting kids in the driver's seat to be the teachers and, and teachers being the students uh, in some cases so they can flip it. But I, I don't think technology is the answer to school culture issues. I mean, I think schools need to work on those culture pieces and establish and firm those up separate from the technology. And then when technology is introduced, the culture is going to get even stronger. And I think Nueva is fortunate that it has a very strong school culture. And we realized that the first year of the laptop program kind of breached that culture and, and broke it down a little bit. And we realized that we needed to work as a community to build that up because we didn't want the technology to take away the culture that the school had so strongly developed. So have you watched other one-to-one -one programs that you felt um, didn't work and ended up giving one-to-one -one computing a bad name? Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen too many. I mean, out here, I mean, the model before we launched our one-to-one -one is the urban school in San Francisco. They've been doing great work with a one-to-one -one laptop program. Uh, St. Mark's School in San Rafael has just launched a one-to-one -one laptop program, and they're having a, a pretty good amount of success to start going through. And I, and I think it's a matter of being thoughtful uh, as you roll it out, uh, trying to anticipate the issues, and, and learning from mistakes. I mean, frankly, that was the motivator for me to write the book, was that I wanted other people to learn from the mistakes that we made, because I do think that one-to-one -one learning is really the way to go in the 21st century. And it, it may not be a laptop. It might be a tablet. It could be some other device. But I think that one-to-one -one environment can really transform schools, and I've seen that firsthand in the way that. There's certainly not universal agreement about one-to-one -one programs. But why don't we use that as a springboard to let you kind of give a, a short but not complete, knowing that the book is complete, kind of a uh, sense of the takeaways, your, your top takeaways, and then we'll move to Q&A. Sure, sure. Well, I, I think, that, you know, which I read about in the book, the number one takeaway for me is listen to the students. Uh, and give them a voice in the process uh, in terms of creating agreements in the community and also following their lead in terms of their interests and passions. For example, a programming class. When that grew out of student interest, we realized we needed to respond to that. And also letting them teach us uh, along the way. And I think you know, the second thing is make sure that there's massive parent education and parent buy-in. I think that's a critical piece because when you go to one-to-one, -to -one, 
it's a 24-7 environment. School does not end at 3.30 anymore. It spills into the home, and the home and the school have to be uh, on the same page. I think also, you know, allowing for the organic development of, of teachers uh, and knowing that teachers are at different levels and working and coaching teachers along the way through teacher evaluation, um, through teachers visiting other classes, uh, and allowing for those lunchtime conversations and staff time for people to play with some of the technology uh, going forward. Uh, so those are some of the probably the top three takeaways right there. And just for the sake of the recording, for those of you who haven't bought the book yet and have some enticement, he goes on to say, don't go it alone, be flexible, stay the course, maintain balance, Remember the kids are kids and they need guidance, keep learning with students, and overcome fears. Okay, so we're going to move to Q&A, and if you would like to ask Matt a question, you can do so by raising your hand using the hand with the green up arrow. We'll give you the microphone. It helps if you've tested your mic in advance, but you're, you can try it, and if your voice doesn't come through, we'll have you run the audio set up. I noticed there were a number of questions in the chat that flipped by, and I am not able to track them, so I'm hoping you'll post them again. But I do know that uh, Doug, I wondered if you had read the New York Times article this past weekend where it had seen the online video report, and it was called Growing Up Digital Wired for Distraction. I did, I did read that article this weekend and, and found it you know, very interesting uh, to read. And I, I think one of the pieces in there that was fascinating to me was the story at the end of the article about the English teacher who was trying to figure out a way to deal with the kids, and she was having trouble getting them to read 30 pages of a book for homework, so her solution was to do a read-aloud in class because she felt like the kids couldn't do it on, on their own. And you could really sort of sense her despair and frustration with the digital kid as opposed to thinking, well, how can we do this a little bit differently? You know, maybe there's a way you set up a Facebook character page or you use Today's Meet to construct a class conversation through one of the characters' eyes uh, to create some back-channel chat going on. Or ask the kids, hey, kids, you know, how can we use technology to deepen our understanding of this book and what, I get, what ideas do you guys have? I mean, one of the best stories that I've come across is a former colleague of mine who is teaching 10th grade world history and she asked her kids at the end of the year, they were studying 20th century China, you know, how would you guys like to approach this? And the kids said, well, let's set up Facebook profiles for Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek and create friend lists and you know, bring in their musical interests, uh, their personal interests and engage in online chat going that way. And she said the kids spent hours on research uh, and were working well into the night on that kind of a project. So I, I was a little bit bummed at the end of that article, just that it ended on that note with that English teacher. And Connie seems to be agreeing with you. So if you have a question for Matt, you can use the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of the participant window to raise your hand, or you can post that question in the chat or post it again if I've, if I've missed it. Um, how have you dealt with student-teacher communication? In terms of well, you, setting I'm, limits? I'm, I, I know you address it in the book, but in terms of Facebook interaction or email, and I know you went to a policy with regard to emailing students, right? Yeah, I mean, we, well, we really felt that you know, all the communication that was going to happen at school really needed to happen within the, the school uh, mail server as opposed to on Gmail or some other outside tool or even Facebook going through. And, and that's, that's what we really try and hold to, and I think our staff is great about staying within that. And, you know, one of the challenges with that, <laughs> interestingly, is that 
you know, if you were to ask the kids their choice of emails that they would like to use, I would say they're in the way of email is their last choice. And their first choice is probably Gmail and Yahoo going through. And I can think of actually, we have a student in fifth grade last year who gave me a whole education tutorial on the use of email. She had four different email accounts. Her Nueva Mail, which was for school and homework. Her Yahoo, for anything that she purchased online, so all the receipts went in there. Then she had a Gmail account for her Nueva friends. And then she had a Gmail account for her non-Nueva friends outside of it. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. This 10-year-old has figured out how to organize her online life much better than me, because my inbox is flooded with all sorts of intersecting things from receipts. Uh, to friend with, you know, friendships that I've had from college to professional information. So I thought, I thought that was pretty fascinating. But we were constantly working on that piece of, of boundaries in terms of uh, the teacher-student communication. Connie wants to know if you have any thoughts on whether cyberbullying is just a reflection of things going on in the local culture, or does the technology actually start it up? Well, I think, you know, Obviously, bullying has been going on forever, you know, within school communities, but it does happen so fast uh, with the technology, whether it's a chat, and, and how, you know, it's, it's fascinating when I've seen chat transcripts, because, you know, our parents have brought them in, and some of the kids as well. It, it almost goes from zero to 60, um, how quickly the conversation can turn with a comment that can be made, and of course, it's not face-to-face. So you're sitting there and you don't have, you don't see the person's reaction when you say something, how hurtful that comment can be. And, and I think that's the dangerous part. And of course we saw that, you know, with the Tyler Clemente story, how quickly that became viral. And even with YouTube videos, how quickly they become viral. And I think cyberbullying can become viral so quickly um, that the technology does often speed up uh, the nature of, of the bullying that can happen. And then it plays out at school. And it can play out for months. I mean, you know, we, we have had incidents where something happened and we find out that four months earlier there'd been a cyberbullying incident between two kids and it just happens to, to carry on for a long time. And that's why I think schools have an obligation to address those situations, even if it occurs outside the school network on Gmail or, or Facebook, because it plays out at school in the hallways. Matt, at one point in the book, you talk about uh, why students believe cultures exist. <laughs> Would you mention that? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's to protect the teachers. <laughs> that's, the, that's the response, I think, of, of, the, of the filters. And, and you know, I, it's fascinating. I mean, Alan November does a great thing when he presents at different places. Is You know, when you ask kids about school filters, um, you know, you can quickly go into Google and find out that there are 230,000 hits on how to bypass school filters and then you know, he loves to just turn around and say, just so you know, that's what your kids are doing every day. And he says, you know, when he walks into schools, he asks kids, so what proxy are you using? <laughs> of course, they'll rattle off three or four different proxies they're using to bypass the school filters. So that's where that game is. A little bit of cat and mouse can come into play. Fascinating. Okay, so if you have a question for Matt, please put it in the chat or feel free to raise your hand. Matt. From, from your experiences here, are there, can you extrapolate in any way larger policy questions? Um, are you brave enough to kind of address some of the national uh, education policy movements and how you feel they are or are not reflective of what you're experiencing? In terms of cyberbullying or just in terms no, of... No, no, in terms of testing, in terms of national standards, in terms of um, sort of... Um, 
uh, federal um, mandating of programs, that kind of thing. And my sense is that so much of what you've done has been local community that, that you yeah. want to look for ways to support that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, the hard thing is in technology certainly underscores this, that one size does not fit all. Um, and the beauty of a one-to-one -one program um, is, is the differentiation opportunities that can go through. And of course, No Child Left Behind is so heavily emphasized on that there's one standard for every student. And I think there needs to be different levels uh, that can, kids can go through. I mean, there's a guy, um, Seth Prebash, who uh, is the founder of, I think it's uh, Scavenger is, is the name of the company. And he gave this great TED talk on the game layer. Uh, and he talked about the decade of 2000 to 2010 being the completion of the social layer and that the next layer for schools is the game layer. And of course then he talked about school being as the most poorly designed game that there is, but it could be a fabulously designed game because it's about moving to different levels. Uh, and of course if you think about kids with video games, what do they encounter over and over again is failure. They'll play the same game for three and a half hours and fail for three and a half hours, but then have success ultimately. And it's about perseverance and resilience going through. But then you switch that over to school, and they may not show that same resilience. And why won't they press through to get to those different levels? So I think it would be kind of interesting to, to begin to take that sort of mind frame into how to design standards and how to design kids moving uh, through different levels. So Ken Robinson just gave. You know, there's a great uh, video on YouTube um, that he's been talking about in terms of the factory model design of schools and that whoever came up with the idea that, you know, age was the way to group kids, you know, because kids are at such different levels in different ways. So I think we really have an opportunity and an obligation to have the conversation about differentiation uh, with technology as, as a driver. If I've missed a question, let me know. Uh, otherwise, feel free to raise your hand. The hand with the green up arrow. There is a conversation that was fascinating to me. Uh, Dirk was saying that uh, the kids know how to avoid the porn and the teachers don't. How to avoid the porn? Yeah, how to avoid pornography on the web. And I think, uh, I think the point was that, that often the students are aware of how to, how to manage the web and the teachers aren't. I mean, I think that, you know, that is often the case and, and, you know, I think this summer, again, there were some stories of some teachers, uh, you know, on Facebook that were in the national press who'd made some poor choices in terms of things that they'd put out there that they didn't realize uh, had an audience beyond maybe their five friends on, on Facebook or whatever the case might be. Uh, and I think oftentimes kids do, you know, that, that story of the 10-year-old with four different email accounts, I mean, she's pretty skilled at <laughs> how to navigate. Uh, her digital rivers, if you want to think about that metaphor. I mean, she can handle the rapids coming out of better than some of the adults uh, out there. Hey, Matt. So you mentioned Alan November quite a bit in the book. You mentioned common sense media. Um, who else are you following who would recommend uh, that people look at? I think, uh, for me, the most interesting social media thinker out there and, and the most interesting thinker around technology and, and integrating technology in schools is Dana Boyd. Um, she's a Microsoft researcher and she's at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. She's got a great blog, zephoria.org. Uh, she's got a recent piece um, which I thought was incredibly insightful about bullying 
and about the language of bullying, that adults really don't understand the language of bullying from a kid's point of view. And I think she's really been helpful to me in terms of shifting my mindset and thinking from looking at it from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. And Dana is great at sort of getting on the inside with kids to understand their perspective around technology and the language that's developing with them. So she's she's somebody who I follow regularly. So I did interview Dana, and I'm just putting it out in the chat, that my interview with her is up on futureofeducation.com. And she's not hard to find. Not, I can't remember if it's, yeah, right. it's all lowercase. I don't remember if it's D-A-N-A or D-A-N-A-H. I think there's an H. Yeah, D-A-N-A-H, yeah. Okay, Kimber says, what monitor program do you use with a laptop program Matt? I work for an online high school. I think that would really help in some cases with the kids. I think that would really help in some cases with kids not at all. Those that sit on the social sites and not doing their work on a school on school provided computer, the high schoolers know how to work this system. So I guess the question is what monitor program? Uh, we've been using Apple Remote Desktop. Hello? Perfect. So uh, Catherine says, you mentioned differentiation. What has your experience been with using technology to aid in RTI? RTI? I don't know what RTI is. I don't know. So Catherine, if you wouldn't mind spelling that out for us. <coughs> Return to intervention. Response to intervention. In terms of, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm understanding that. I don't know, and I'm not the right one to be interpreting that. Uh, differentiation for, maybe this is for students who uh, have, are at risk or dropped out, and what the impact of the, the differentiation has been for them. But are you seeing anything in that area, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it was, what's been interesting is with our elective offerings, we were able to offer some different choices for kids. So we have a video arts elective, um, robotics electives, programming. And we found that, you know, with, for example, with video art, that that's been a, a class that has been wonderful for some of the kids who may struggle in some of the more traditional courses, like, uh, you know, humanities or writing courses. It's a different way for them to tell a story and to find their voice going through, and that's been pretty exciting to see some of the projects that they've created and some of the success and confidence that they've been able to build uh, with that course, and, and we have a fabulous teacher who helps to guide them in that way. So that's been a way that I think we've been able to reach some kids who maybe in some of the more traditional courses uh, haven't had as easy a time. Okay, well, we are uh, only a few minutes away from wrapping up. I'm going to uh, clap for Matt. Matt, I need to let you know that I thought this was a terrific book. And, and part of the fun of the book is that it's not that long. You can read this in a few hours, and um, I felt like you were open and honest, and you you know, should, uh, opened up these experiences that you had and looked for the deeper themes in them. And this is a book that I highly recommend. Uh, and so if you, if you haven't bought it, I'm going to encourage you to do so. I want to give thanks to Run Central and Illuminate, now Blackboard Collaborate, for my <laughs> employment. <laughs> thanks to, to Redo for helping to sponsor the series. Don't forget coming up um, on the 30th, uh, Philip Schlechty on Leading for Learning, and then in December, a really fun lineup of folks. Um, somebody's asking how they can get you as a speaker. I'm going to let you... Um, respond in the chat directly if you'd like to, Matt. Thanks so much for coming on. 
That's great. Thanks for having me, Steve. Enjoy. Absolutely. It. I'm going to make a connection for you um, with um, Alex Inman on his Linux one-to-one laptop program. Oh, great. And then, yeah. and knowing that you and I. Uh, have led uh, lives with some unique parallels in them. I'll look forward to staying in touch with you. Okay, great. Thanks, Steve. That was terrific. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and close the recording now. Great. Thank